You're listening to the So What Podcast. And this is where Athanasius then comes in and attacks Arianism. There is this ontological duality assumed that I just presented between uncreated reality and created reality. So then Athanasius says, where do you place the sun? If you have these two distinct modes of existence, does the sun share more in common with the worm and the angel or with the father who's uncreated? And that's where he really presses Arianism. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On the second of a two-part episode, the crew will continue their discussion on Arius and subordinationism. Well, before we head over to our discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhat Podcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion. I think it's helpful, especially because we're trying to avoid this unhelpful concepts of subordination. Um ontological and temporal that the father and the son or, or I mean I would want to say father son and holy spirit are all oriented toward one another here right so when Jesus talks about this he's talking about how the father has sent him and the father loves him and the father approves of him um, and he obeys the father and he glorifies the father and he sends the spirit and so they are all oriented sort of away from themselves and towards one another and so the Trinitarian relations are characterized by this other-oriented, self-giving love, even amongst themselves. And so when we start to talk about the way Jesus defers to the Father, I would want to suggest that that is an expression of his other-oriented love for the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the ways we can talk about God loving his own glory. If, if God were modalistic or a sole, sole singular entity, um, and not Trinitarian, that would seem very self-seeking, you know, God's love for his own glory and his love for his own name. It would sound sort of, you know, all very self-oriented. But when we see Jesus in the Spirit in the New Testament, all, we, all of a sudden we discover that the love of God and God's love for his, and God's passion for his own glory is expressed in Trinitarian mm-hmm. terms. Um, the Father isn't out for the Father. The Father is out for the Son, and the Son is out to glorify the Father, and they both uh, the, you know, send the Spirit, and the Father breathes forth the Spirit, and the Son sends the Spirit. And there's all this, seldom do you hear, I'm not sure you ever hear something like, the Father glorifies the Father, right? That's the Son's job. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's this constant other-orientedness right. Right. To, their, to their relations. And so when we start talking about the Son 
you know, the father is greater than I, when Jesus says something like that, it needs to be understood in that context of other oriented love within the Trinitarian relations. So John 14, 28, surely that's not the only place that uh, Arius would have gone to no. in his defense. I think another really good one uh, that is still used today by modern Arianism is Colossians 1, 15. He being Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So here it seems what Paul is saying is that not only does Christ visibly display who God is, he does so because he was the first thing that was created, the first being that came into existence outside of God. So how would we uh, interpret what Paul is saying? Um, I typically, when that question comes up, point to two things, in, in one, one with cultural context and one with the, within the text itself. First of all, whereas for us, firstborn is primarily a temporal category mm-hmm. in the ancient world, it had as much to do with status, the the firstborn, and it gets all the stuff. The inheritance, yeah, right? You yeah, get, you mm-hmm. get the authority, you get the inheritance, yeah. you get you get the the uh, the material, and and so it, it would be conceivable in the first century to call Jesus the firstborn and have in view his authority, right? And not and and a, not have it a be time a, stamp. A, a temporal yeah. category. I mean Paul almost explicitly says that halfway through the next verse. Yeah, and that's the contextual piece. Yeah, okay. Yep. So the the yeah, the second thing, mm-hmm. all things have been created through him, mm-hmm. right? So if he's a created being and all things have been created through him, that's a contradiction because mm-hmm. you can't create yourself. Right. Um so he has to be outside the realm of all created things, which suggests that firstborn is not in reference to create his creation in verse 18 also in in colossians you get an analogy with the resurrection of jesus where he's called the firstborn from the dead and Mm, and and then there's a purpose statement so that he might become he might come to have first place Mm -hmm. so jesus is temporally the firstborn from the dead but that's not the point here the point is that he has first place in the new creation right he's sort of got this place of authority so there's there's evidence in the context of Colossians one fifteen to twenty to suggest that temporality is not in view, um, authority yeah in the created realm and in the new creation right is I think also when you're thinking about Colossians written by Paul and you take other writings that Paul has written he has a habit of going to the Old Testament finding passages that are speaking of Yahweh God. and then appropriating them to Christ. Mm -hmm. That, at the time Paul is writing, is blasphemy. And it's a serious accusation that would have been brought against him and was over and over and over again. So for Paul to, at one point, say, you know, I'm going to borrow from Joel all those who call in the name of the Lord, Yahweh will be saved. Well, that was talking about Jesus. And then write to the Colossians, well, you know, yeah. maybe it's not as 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 uh, easy as we think it is. I, I think that's suspicious. Yeah, one of the most important ones is in Deuteronomy eight six, where Paul takes the mm-hmm. not Deuteronomy First six, Corinthians yep, yep. eight six. He takes Deuteronomy six, um, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he brings it into his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, and he integrates Jesus. You know, the Shema is the great prayer of Jewish monotheism. Mm-hmm. One God, the Lord your God is one. There is no other. Um, love him alone. And uh, he takes that 
Jewish you know liturgy of monotheism and in first Corinthians 8 6 puts Jesus right in the middle of it so you have yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist and so G- Paul has sort of into right talks about um, Christologically shaped monotheism right Christologically reshaped monotheism where there's this idea that if you want to know the God revealed you know the God of Israel he's revealed through Jesus interestingly Paul in that same letter can talk about in ver- in chapter 15 how Christ uh, when he defeats all of his enemies will surrender the kingdom to the father you know and mm-hmm. so there's this sense right. of sort yeah. of subordination right he'll be he says uh, then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the father after he's destroyed every ruler every authority and every power for he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death God has put all things in subjection under his feet and so and then in, in verse 28 when all things are subjected to to him the son himself will be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so there is this sense of the son subjecting himself to the father mm-hmm. um, but the same guy who said that in chapter 15 has just taken the shema and integrated the son into the middle of it right. right so you have to read those things together yeah subordinationism as a doctrine if we're thinking of ontology and chronology or being and length of existence or point of origination in time is a heresy. The, the reason there is sort of a mist of confusion that descends on this controversy is because as we're exploring this new revelation of God as a trinity of three persons in one God, which was not explicitly formulated in the Old Testament scriptures, though it is not inconsistent with it as Matt pointed out, you can take the Shema and just in, Paul can just insert Jesus or refer to him as Yahweh, as Lord, you know, the Greek word that was used of, of God in the uh, Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is almost used exclusively of Jesus in the New Testament. But w- most of these texts that we have to draw on to give us a glimpse into Trinitarian relations come from the incarnate ministry of Jesus from the Gospels and from their explication in the epistles. And so that was a unique period of the history in the history of redemption where the son was subordinate to the father, where the son says, I came to do the will of him who sent me, where he says, my food is to do the will of, of God, where he prays in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, where he had assumed a human nature, um, which is united to his divine nature. But for a period of time, Matt mentioned the key text for kenotic Christology, it's called, or the, you know, the Greek word kenosis, which means self-emptying from Philippians 2, 7, that the Son of God made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so there is this willing, voluntary, voluntary subordination of role, authority, that the son takes upon himself for his incarnate ministry. And then there's, you know, current debate, we won't touch on it today, but how how far does that extend back right. and how far does it extend forward? Is it just relegated to his 33 years on earth? Or we won't get into that, but there is there is a lot that, the points we were making about Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that could refer to inheritance, 
that could refer to a special love of the father. Arius would agree, I think, with both of those mm-hmm. statements and say, well, yes, he does precede creation in that sense. And yes, he is the rightful heir to it, as the New Testament affirms. And he is a special object of love in the Father because there's nothing comparable to him in all of creation. But in Arius's desire, and so this was the second point after trying to exegete scripture and remain faithful to it, he wants to safeguard the monarchy, which is a, a key term used in the third century and prior, and ineffability of the Father. So the Father against those that would blur um, or that would seek to overemphasize difference within the Godhead. Excuse me, that would, against those that would see, like Sibelius, a modalism, a, a, a unity of the Godhead, the Father is unique and monarch and king and unoriginated and uncreated and transcendent and unknowable. There's a strong apophatic or negative theology that Arius holds to. So you imagine this gulf between created reality and uncreated reality. So there is the divine being, which nothing else shares in, is completely transcendent and the Father's alone. And then there is created reality, which we know, time, space, matter. And that gulf was seen as so strong and in a desire to safeguard the uniqueness of the Father and his glory Jesus was used in Arian Christology as a mediation between those two, which how could those things have anything to do with one another? Well, you have a midpoint. You have a creation before creation of the Son of God, a begetting of the Son and a breathing out of the Spirit, and those allow a bridge between an uncreated, unoriginated being and a contingent, dependent, finite being in time and space. And so it seems to solve a problem and it seems to safeguard something for the father. Yeah. The, ultimately the, the church came along and said, if you have an initial begetting, it doesn't solve the problem. So that was the, the, the church concluded that. And, and their response was that the begetting is always and always will be happening. That it, and that maintains eternal equality and ontological equality. Yeah. No, that's good. That's a whole different That's a topic. It is. discussion. <laughs> and, this, and this is where Athanasius then comes in and attacks Arianism and Arius. There is this ontological duality assumed that I just presented between uncreated reality and created reality. These beings that are so vastly different from one another. And that the differences between on the created side, between an archangel and a worm, which we might think are pretty great, pale and insignificance to the difference between created reality as a whole and uncreated reality such as God exists as shares in. So then Athanasius says, where do you place the sun? If you have these two distinct modes of existence, does the sun share more in common with the worm and the angel or with the father who's uncreated? Mm -hmm. And that's where he really presses Arianism. And, and creates this, you know, choice between two unacceptable al- alternatives, essentially. The, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. But uh, obviously after the incarnation, Jesus right. shares in, you know, and that has a human nature. I think that tiptoes toward the so what question because Arianism affects soteriology. It affects the way we understand salvation and the possibility 
for the God-man to make atonement. And I, I like what uh, Gerald Bray, a Anglican scholar, so one of your friends there, Travis, says in The Deity of Christ. Not personal friends. Not personal yeah. friend, but like on that team, right? Yeah. Uh, the Deity of Christ published Hope by abounds. Crossway. Yeah. Uh, not Crossway, Crossway, although maybe there is something called Crossway. There uh, is now. <laughs> he says this, writing about salvation and Arianism. If Christ was the being whom Arius claimed he was, then he is not God. And if he is not God, he was as far away from him as we are, and therefore totally unable to do anything for us. There may be gradations of being within the created order, but whatever they are, and however much they matter to us, they are as nothing to God. And so really, you do have that dilemma that you have to consider. No, that's... That helps put a point on it and bring it into immediate applicability. And that became an important argument in the Fathers was the hypostatic union, this union of two natures in Christ is essential to salvation because if atonement is going to be made to the Father on behalf of creation, then there needs to be someone who can die. Mm -hmm. And so a human nature is a, required. A last Adam to but, take back what the first Adam lost. But if it's going to be a full satisfaction beyond that which animals could provide in the Old Testament sacrificial system, then it needs to be divine in the sense of powerful enough to be sinless and to fully satisfy God's wrath and reconcile man and God again. And so you needed a divine and human sacrifice. And I think one, one thing that strikes me as kind of a, to draw all these pieces together is the far reaching implications of the Aryan question um, are almost without limit. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets into so many things. Um, incarnation. Um, it touches everything. Yeah, soteriology. Yeah. Yep. Everything. Mm -hmm. um, your worship, focus of worship. You sing yeah. a song to Jesus. Isn't yeah. that tantamount to idolatry? Because yeah. you're, you're you singing to a created yeah. Are you worshiping the created thing instead of the creator? That's right, yeah. yeah. Yep. So there's the early church prayers to Jesus. Well, that's not. So then the how this then is argued as Athanasius, I mentioned the ontological duality on which side is the sun, created reality or uncreated reality? Does he share more in common with God or the worm? You have to make a decision that had a certain rhetorical power that after the Nicene Creed became definitive in helping defeat Arianism. So I'm just going to read one thing from Steve Holmes's book. He says, Athanasius brings the language of divine essence to the fore in his discussions, so the importance of the homoousian, and that's that clause again that word from the Nicene Creed meaning same substance or same essence God's essence is of course ineffable and inexpressible even Arius and Alexander the bishop whom Arius was accusing of heresy have been united on that point that God's being is ineffable inexpressible however Athanasius thinks that we may know certain things to be true of the divine essence one being its ontological simplicity this means that the manifold qualities which we ascribe to God are not parts of his being so divisible parts, but different ways of referring to the one simple uncompounded essence. If, however, the divine son is indeed homoousios of the same essence, then the divine son is simply God, equally identical with all the divine properties, eternality, being, etc. How do we maintain simplicity whilst holding that both the father and the son are divine? So that's the the rub. And this was a philosophical difficulty for Arius. He's saying, if God is simple and doesn't have component parts, where does that leave the Son? If you're going to distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit, mm -hmm. and God is of a is a simple being without divisible parts, how are they all one and yet distinct? 
So how do we maintain that simplicity while holding that both the Father and the Son are divine? Athanasius says little, but seems to rely on an appeal to the ineffability of the divine essence. This is the way it is on the basis of scriptural testimony. How it can be like this, we cannot hope to know. And so I think this is an important point of where the discussion goes is the orthodox theology eventually says we must affirm what scripture affirms and then beyond that not engage in philosophical speculation on matters where scripture does not speak. So why do we teach these things? Because they seem to be the overwhelming conclusion of the revelation God has given Mm -hmm. us, not because they make perfect sense in our minds, not because they satisfy the demands of Greek philosophy or any other philosophy, but because it is what God has revealed to us. And so the creeds become important boundary markers on our theology of here's the field. We've marked off the boundaries. There's lots of room for debate and play within the boundaries. However, if you transgress the boundaries and you start engaging in philosophical speculation on matters of which God has not chosen in his wisdom and goodness, to condescend and speak on or reveal to us, then you've left a place of being able to make authoritative statements and perhaps endangered yourself and others who would pick up the trajectory of your arguments and carry them forward like Jehovah's Witnesses have done, for example, with Arian Christology. So what? To ask the question again, why should Christians care about Arius and subordinationism? Arianism fundamentally misunderstands certain passages of Scripture that emphasize the other-oriented love of the Trinity, cultural contexts such as the concept of firstborn inheritance in Colossians 1.15, and the fact that the New Testament writers habitually reappropriated Old Testament passages about Yahweh to speak to the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, what Arianism must admit is that, as Athanasius pointed out, the Son since time before time, has had more in common with the worm than he does with God. In all, Arianism severely affects every aspect of our theology, especially our soteriology. It severely reduces the Son's ability to make an infinite, sufficient atonement for sin. Well, the next episode, we're going to take a short break from the regular schedule to do something a little different. We have over and again mentioned that Jehovah's Witnesses, well known for their door-to-door proselytism, are a modern living example of Arianism, so far as their Christology is concerned. For this reason, we decided to take a popular tract used by Jehovah's Witnesses titled, Should You Believe in the Trinity?, and comment on its content. We hope that you'll check it out. 